energy so stalling, yeah. Everybody's running scared. We used to be so carefree, we used to be so happy, we used to have everything we need. Welcome to Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. What's up, kings and queens, beautiful people everywhere? It's your girl, C.K. McGee, and I am your host. Hey there, beautiful people. How's everyone doing? I pray that you're all doing as well as you can be. Welcome to another episode of Village Mentality. I'm so glad to have you all here with me in the village. Now, if you've missed last week's episode, don't worry about it. It's all good. I invite you to catch up with that and all past episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Anchor, or Radio Public. And I also provide links to each episode on both Instagram and Facebook, and I'll share those with you at the end of the show. Now, you should know by now that every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you're more than welcome to join me here in the village as I talk about different topics that could impact our mental health as BIPOC communities. And of course, there will be times when I'll talk about self-care practices that can help to rejuvenate your spirit and soul so that you can continue to be the fantabulous kings and queens that you most definitely are. And I'll be right here to remind you of that each and every week. And you should also note that all of the topics that are discussed here on my show will be looked at through a mental health perspective which is at the heart of everything that I talk about here on the show. So if somebody asks you, what is Village Mentality about? You want to talk about it being about mental health. That's what it's about. It's about mental health, All right? So I want to make that clear so that you guys understand that. Now, I have to let you all know, Village, that the season finale for season four is just around the corner. In fact, the season will wrap up next week. But the great thing is that you can still catch the show and past episodes on multiple platforms while I'm away. And before you know it, I'll be back. You know how fast time goes. <laughs> and who knows, I just may have some news to share with you all upon my return. Now, I want to give a special shout out to the Los Angeles Rams for their Super Bowl win over the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, at times, it was a nail-biter, honey, but L.A. did prevail. Now, did you all check out the halftime show? <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but I was up on my feet for sure, and I was doing the two-step with Snoop. I mean, he does a little bit better than I do, of course, but I was enjoying Dr. Dre, the queen of hip-hop soul, Mary J. Blige, Kendrick Lamar, and Slim Shady himself, Eminem, and was even surprised because I didn't know that 50 Cent was going to make an appearance, still able to hang upside down, I see. 
Well, I had a great time watching my mom and the gang. We was all taking the game in and all the festivities and we enjoyed ourselves. So I hope for all of you out there who are football fans that you enjoyed it too. Now, without further ado, I believe that it's time for me to take my first walk of the evening to my musical jukebox. Our first song of the evening is considered a power ballad and it was composed by Marvin Hamlish with lyrics by Carol Bayer Sager. It was recorded by this American singer songwriter and also children's author, I might add. I mean, she's multi-talented, huh? Now, this was the first Bond, James Bond theme song to be titled differently from the name of the film since Dr. No, right? Now, the title of this movie though, if you listen carefully, it is included in the lyrics of the song. Now, this song became a major worldwide hit, spending three weeks at number two on the US Billboard Hot 100, but was kept out of the top spot by Debbie Boone's You Light Up My Life. But it was also number one on the Billboard Easy Listening Chart. The song was certified gold, which signified sales of 1 million copies in the US. Now, known for her other mega hits, Anticipation, and Haven't Got Time for the Pain, here is Carly Simon with Nobody Does It Better. And listen carefully to see if you can hear the name of the movie in the song.
was the first single that was released on their third album and it was written by Barry Gordy, Motown creator, and Hal Davis along with Bob West and Willie Hutch. Now this song was released by Motown Records on August 28, 1970 and it was the Jackson 5's number four hit in a row, which made them the first group to have their first four singles reach number one. And the first black male group with four consecutive number one pop hits. Now, I have to mention that this was the most successful single that was released by Motown during its Detroit era, which were between the years of 1959 to 1972. And in 2011, this song, I'll Be There, was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Well, Village, you know me. I like to take a little bit of time to talk about some things, you know, whether it be about current events, entertainment, or something that is just on my mind. So why don't we get into my segment called Let's Talk About It. As you all know, February is Black History Month, and even though there's a lot of conversation about extending Black history all year round so that it's not just one month in which it's focused upon, we are honoring this month, at least I am, African-American inventors. And so today I'll be talking about Patricia Bath. She was born in 1942 and she died in 2019. Now, Patricia Bath was the first African-American woman to complete a residency in ophthalmology. She was also the first African-American woman doctor to receive a medical patent. She invented the laser faco probe for cataract treatment in 1986. She became the first woman 
faculty member in the Department of Ophthalmology at UCLA's Jules Stein Eye Institute. And in 1976, she co-founded the American Institute for the Prevention of Blindness, which established that eyesight is a basic human right. Her father, Rupert Bath, was the first black motorman for the New York City subway system. And her mother, Gladys, was a housewife and domestic worker who used her salary to save money for her children's education. Now, she was encouraged by her family to pursue academic interests. Her father, who was a former merchant marine and an occasional newspaper columnist, taught Bath about the wonders of travel and the value of exploring new cultures. Her mother piqued the young girl's interest in science by buying her a chemistry set. See, it can all start right at home. Now, as a result, Bath worked hard on her intellectual pursuits and at the age of 16, became one of only a few students to attend a cancer research workshop sponsored by the National Science Foundation. The program head, Dr. Robert Bernard was so impressed with Bath's discoveries during the project that he incorporated her findings in a scientific paper he presented at a conference. The publicity surrounding her discoveries earned Bath the Mademoiselle Magazine's Merit Award in 1960. After graduating from high school in only two years, Bath headed to Hunter College, where she earned a bachelor's degree in 1964, and she then attended Howard University to pursue a medical degree. She graduated with honors from Howard in 1968 and accepted an internship at Harlem Hospital shortly thereafter. The following year, she also began pursuing a fellowship in ophthalmology, excuse me, at Columbia University. Through her studies there, she discovered that African-Americans were twice as likely to suffer from blindness than other patients which she attended and eight times more likely to develop glaucoma. Her research led to the development of a community ophthalmology system, which increased the amount of eye care given to those who were unable to afford treatment. You know, it's always so interesting to learn about um, these African-American inventors, people in general who contributed to the country. And of course, you know, I always invite you to do your own research if you want to hear or see more extensive accomplishments um, that Patricia Bath made. But thank you, Ms. Bath, for your example of Black excellence. Now, according to Mindfulness Muse in an article written by Dr. Laura K. Schneck, and I do hope that I pronounced that correctly. I apologize if I didn't. She has identified seven basic self-esteem concepts. Of course, this is all in the spirit of International Boost Self-Esteem Month. Now, she believes that self-esteem relates to your appreciative and realistic opinion of yourself. When we go too far in either direction on the continuum of self-esteem, we move towards either self-defeating shame or self-defeating pride. 
A healthy sense of self-esteem requires a balance between these two poles. Well, I mean, I can definitely relate to that, right? Because I think that balance is important in everything that we do. Too much of anything is usually not good for us. So let's talk about these self-esteem concepts that also were featured in the self-esteem workbook workbook by Chiraldi in 2001. All right, you guys ready? All right, well, here we go. First up is identity, right? Your sense of identity can be found through asking the question, who am I, right? Some people may respond to this question with words such as mother, husband, writer, student, son, daughter. These are all labels that we affix to ourselves as being parts of who we are. These labels provide us with a sense of who we are across different contexts and in different situations. Now, sometimes we identify more with different parts of ourselves depending upon which group of friends we're with or whether we're in a professional or social context. You guys know you can be with some friends where you can just be totally silly, you know, laugh hysterically and have a good time. Or you might be friends with people who are, you know, very um, civic minded and perhaps, you know, they want to change the world and, you know, they're doing big things and, and they're achieving things and they are inspiring you to do the same, right? We all know that we carry and conduct ourselves, <clears throat> excuse me, differently if we're at work as opposed to if we're hanging out with our friends and our family. So that's kind of how they mean when we're talking about our identity, right? Now, this is normal and healthy, of course. Labels that we affix to our identity may become problematic, though, when we overly identify with any one role. For example, as a student, right? Because when you're no longer a student, then who are you? When you're no longer a wife or when you're no longer a husband, um, you know, when your children have grown up and have moved away and have lives of their own, who are you? Who are you then, right? So they say that the solution to this potential problem is to make sure that we have a diverse set of interests and relationships so that we see ourselves as more than any one part of ourselves, right? So you don't want to just cling to just one identity, like that's the only, you know, um, thing that you are when you are actually so much more, right? How about appreciation? Now this relates to our ability to value, enjoy, and express gratitude for what we have, you know, our personal strengths, accomplishments, and our relationships. It is important to remember that part of appreciation as it relates to a healthy sense of self-esteem involves accurately estimating the quality and worth of someone or something. When we idealize something or someone, we falsely attribute positive qualities to the person or thing that it does not truly have. Well, what do I mean? Okay, ladies, so you could be out there talking to your girls about this guy that you're dating and you, oh my God, he is so generous and he is so like cool. Like he has a wonderful sense of humor and he's so giving and just so loyal and so friendly. Now, if any of these ladies have had the opportunity to be around your guy, they might be looking at you side-eyed like, you know, good and well, girl, he ain't nothing like that. Right? <laughs> or you can be doing the converse side of things. Girl, he is just so wonderful. 
oh my God. But he just hardly spends time with me, right? He just seems like he's so selfish. He never thinks about me, you know? He's always hanging out with his friends and, you know, um, he's always working all the time. Now, some people might look at that and be like, he's working all the time? Okay, so he has a job? Oh, shoot, that's great. Uh-huh, and what's the problem? Okay, so he hangs out with his friends? All right, so he lets you have some time to yourself where you can breathe? Like, okay, I'm still not seeing what's wrong. <laughs> you may not be able to appreciate him because of all of these negative labels that you're giving to him, thinking that it's bad when in all actuality, sometimes we gotta step outside of ourselves and sort of look at things objectively so that we can really appreciate um, you know, those attributes that a person truly has, right? And in order to do that, practicing mindfulness will encourage us to step into that role of observer which can strengthen the ability to see those things as they truly are. And so that people are not looking at you crazy, right? Now, acceptance. This involves one's ability to receive things from others in a favorable way. Many people have great difficulty receiving things from others like compliments, favors, love, gratitude, etc. Let me just tell y'all something. Compliments for me, whoo! If you could, if I could blush and you could see like it on my cheeks, you would see like it's so uncomfortable, even though, you know, um, you're thankful and you appreciate the fact that people see you. Sometimes it's just so I don't know, I just feel so embarrassed by it. Now, I have absolutely no problem paying compliments to other people. Oh, I'm there all day. Like, hey, you go. I see you. You're doing a great job. That was an excellent speech, right? I have no problem uplifting other people, but for some reason I have a hard time accepting it for myself, right? Same thing, like some people might have a hard time, you know, accepting love or favors. Asking for help can be real tough for people. You know, you're used to just doing things on your own. And there comes a time when you may need to recognize that it's a strength to ask for help when you need it, right? Um, so I don't know, what, what about you guys? Do you guys have a struggle like that, you know? Now, if this is the case, it can be helpful to reflect, there goes my word, on when you learned that you were undeserving or uncomfortable with receiving from others. And I think that's important to take a look at because I think it does boil down to what you think and feel about yourself. If you don't think that you're deserving or if you don't see your own value or your own worth, then it may be hard for you to receive love without questioning it, you know, to be able to trust that this person genuinely loves you or that, you know, these these individuals want to help you or that somebody really is complimenting you because you're worthy of the compliment, right? So <clears throat> if you are having a hard time, you know, enjoying the compliments. First, know that it's in our nature to enjoy receiving love and appreciation from others. And when this is stunted or when it's painful, it's worth considering where these false beliefs have come from, right? Again, self-acceptance involves the ability to believe in and receive yourself in a favorable light. So let's start thinking about how we think of ourselves, right? So that perhaps we can better understand why others may feel the way they do. 
This can be difficult when there are parts of the self that we are fundamentally opposed to or feel intense shame towards. So in order to build healthy self-esteem, it is crucial work towards an ability to honestly acknowledge all parts of the self and accept all of these disparate parts. When there are parts of the self that seem unforgivable or unacceptable in some way, it is time to begin the process of forgiveness, right? Forgiveness. Once we forgive the self, we can then choose how we would like to be different moving forward. Forgiveness is a huge thing. And we're always thinking about forgiveness as it pertains to others. But are there some things, kings and queens out there that you can think of today that you may need to forgive yourself about? Listen, I can tell you, I know there's something huge I need to forgive myself for. And it's been hard, but it's definitely been a process I've been working through. And I'll tell you, it is directly attached to how I feel about myself. Having been a person that had low self-esteem, who did not think I deserve good things. I'm that person that we're talking about here. I can share that with you because I want you and need you to understand I'm in this with you, all right? Just because I'm sharing this information with you does not by any means make me exempt from what we're talking about. And I've allowed myself to be in a situation I have no business being in, had no business being in, right? But when you don't feel good about yourself, you leave yourself open to poor treatment and not getting the things that you, you know, you deserve. But until you see that, right, you continue to repeat these cycles that ultimately end up being harmful to you. So there's forgiveness that I have to give myself at some point. I'm not saying I'm, I'm totally there, but to forgive myself for taking so long to see that had I felt differently, I perhaps would not have been in the situation I was in, nor would I have allowed it to go on for as long as I did, right? So that's what reflection does. It helps you to see things, you know, the truth of things, but you have to be ready to be honest with yourself and others, okay? We are very quick to point the finger and talk about who did what and this person did that wrong to us and so forth and so on. And it's not to say that they didn't, but is there any way that you may have contributed, like I like to say, <clears throat> to the chaos? And I have found that I have contributed to the chaos of things in my life. And so now going through the process of, of dealing with what I'd like to call a blooming onion, many different levels of a situation, it's time for me to also not only forgive others, but for me to forgive myself, right? Once we do that, like they say, we can move forward and it's more, it, it, we're in a better headspace, right? It's something that we work so hard to give to others. We're so much more thoughtful of other people than we are of ourselves. We forget ourselves. We will completely leave ourselves out of the equation. Right? So think about that. What might you need to forgive yourself? Next up is self-confidence. This refers to a general belief in your own abilities and is related to competence and self-efficacy. 
So as we become more competent in different areas of life, the result is a natural rise in confidence. The trick is that in order to become more confident, we had to be willing to take the risk involved in trying new things and persisting in the face of defeat or adversity. Let me tell y'all village, even just this podcast alone, this was nothing I ever in my life thought I would do. Nothing ever. It never even crossed my mind. And now here it is. It's been almost two years that I've been doing uh, this podcast. And initially when I started it, I had a co-host who was a friend of mine. And I have no technical inclination whatsoever, but I do have the ability and the capacity to learn. But um, she was the one that was taking care of the technical aspects of the podcast. It was not me. Um, But I also knew the importance of learning how to do it, you know, just in case anything could come up, right? But let me tell you, I am doing the podcast, uh, have been doing it um, ever since, um, and I, I put it all together. And let me just say that it makes me so happy each and every week that I'm able to, excuse me, do something that initially I didn't think I was able to do, right? So something like that can definitely boost your self-confidence so that you will be ready to try something more, right? Someone with a strong sense of self-confidence might have a deep-seated belief that given the time, practice, and experience, anyone can accomplish just about anything. Yes, I am a witness. While success rarely comes quickly or completely, the decision to persevere and continue to move in the direction of one's goals is the beginning of developing self-confidence. Now, it's not about speed, baby. It is not. But it's about the continued movement in the direction of your goals. So just take one step, one day at a time. The most important thing is that we keep moving forward. Let's talk about pride. Now, you know what they say, right? Pride goes before the fall. And that's if it's in a bad way, right? So you have to recognize that there are two types of pride. There's self-defeating pride and there's healthy pride. When a person is immersed in self-defeating pride, they have a sense of superiority or greater value than other people. They just smell in themselves. Think who they are. You've heard those terms. Now, these people typically come off to others as grandiose or obnoxious and are often tragically unaware of their own hubris, which is just another word for excessive pride. Now, this unhealthy type of pride is usually rooted in fear and insecurity, as well as an excessive need to be admired by others. See, that's that what lies beneath part that I be talking to you all about sometimes. We see people on the surface and we think something and that's it, we just run with it. But no one ever stops and says, why? Why does a person act like that? Why do they behave that way? Why do they feel this way, right? Fear and insecurity as well as an excessive need to be admired by others. Something was going on in that person's life that brings about those feelings. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum is healthy pride, which is a realistic sense of one's own worth or dignity. An individual with a healthy sense of pride has self-respect and feels both grateful and delight in his or her personal accomplishments, talents, or service. Healthy pride is cultivated by allowing yourself to feel 
proud of your accomplishments and hard work without the need to embellish the facts. These individuals are aware of both their strengths and their weaknesses and are comfortable with praise from themselves and others. Humility, humility. This is something that <clears throat> I think we, we, we need to see a little bit more of, I, I think, in the world, humility. Because as with pride, there are two different types of humility. There's self-defeating humility and healthy humility, right? Knowing how to be humble is, is, a, is a wonderful um, characteristic, knowing how to be humble. But self-defeating humility involves a total lack of self-respect. You know, it's the sense that oneself is worthless, spineless, or contemptible. Sometimes people choose to ruminate excessively, which can lead to a sense of self-defeating humility. So that's dwelling on painful events from the past or unpleasant truths about the self. It, it rarely solves anything, though, if you're going to keep beating yourself up about it. it. It rarely does any good. So I guess that goes back to the idea of forgiving oneself, you know, for those things that you're not so happy with yourself about, right? Selfishness, selfishness, selfishness. Mm. Now, some people, I don't know how, but they do. They confuse self-esteem with being selfish. The true purpose of self-esteem is to transcend the self not to excessively focus on the self. It is not selfish to feel proud of yourself when you do something great, nor is it selfish to feel that you deserve love or respect, okay? So if you recall from the previous basic concepts of self-esteem, that these constructs exist on a continuum, right? You have, you know, good, and then on the other side, you have bad, like too much. So what we're looking for is the balance, right? There's a lot of people who think that life is simply black and white. Wrong. It is not. Sometimes it's gray. Sometimes you got to look in, you, you got to live in the middle in order to have balance because otherwise you're too extreme either way. Do you know somebody who lives you know, their life sort of like to the extreme, something happens to them and then they're just going to go all the way over to the left just so, to ensure that, you know, what happened to me doesn't happen to like, say, for instance, my children. And the truth of the matter is that after perhaps you take some time to reflect and maybe think about the bigger picture, perhaps you'll come to a better understanding of why things happened the way that they did so that you don't have to be so extreme and you can have some balance in your life, right? Now, selfishness. I think we can pretty much kind of tell when somebody is being, but the point is to remember that balance is intrinsic. It's an intrinsic aspect of a healthy self-esteem. Too much selfishness, that's what leads to arrogance, entitlement, and lack of compassion for others. Now, too little selfishness will um, allow oneself to be used by others, right? You'll be acting against your own best interest and be missing out. You'll be missing out on undeserved opportunities, okay? So I know that there are times when we have a problem with the word self because it causes us to believe that thinking about ourselves is a bad thing. 
But when balanced, feeling good about yourself is just what we need. You feel me? It's only when we go overboard with it and become arrogant and obnoxious. In other words, when we're doing too much, that it becomes a problem. But let me remind you, Village, that you deserve to feel good. You deserve good things. You deserve to be loved and you deserve happiness. And as long as we achieve these things in a healthy way, I think that we will all be just fine. You dig? Okay, kings and queens, I have to talk to you all about something. I just found out about this. Did you know that before Central Park was created, the landscape along what is now the park's perimeter from West 82nd to West 89th Street was the site of a place called Seneca Village? Now, this was a community of predominantly African-Americans, many of whom owned property. By 1855, the village consisted of approximately 225 residents, made up roughly of two-thirds African-Americans, a third were Irish immigrants, and a small number of individuals of German descent. Now, one of a few African-American enclaves at the time, Seneca Village allowed residents to live away from the more built-up sections of downtown Manhattan and they were able to escape the unhealthy conditions and racial discrimination they faced there. Now, once again, we always think that there was only racial discrimination in the South, but as we learn more, we have come to realize that it's simply not true. Racial discrimination was experienced in every part of this country. It's just that there were places where it was more overt, right? So Seneca Village began in 1825, when landowners in the area, John and Elizabeth Whitehead, subdivided their land and sold it as 200 lots. Andrew Williams, who was a 25-year-old African-American shoe shiner, bought the first three lots for $125. Epiphany Davis, a store clerk, brought 12 lots for $578, and the AME Zion Church purchased another six lots. From there, a community was born. From 1825 to 1832, the Whiteheads sold about half of their land parcels to other African-Americans. By the early 1830s, there were approximately 10 homes in the village. There is some evidence that residents had gardens and raised livestock in Seneca Village, and the nearby Hudson River was a likely source of fishing for the community. A nearby spring known as Tanner's Spring provided a water source. By the mid-1850s, Seneca Village comprised 50 homes and three churches, as well as a burial ground and school for African-American students. It was a thriving African-American community. And now for African-American, Seneca Village offered the opportunity to live in an autonomous community far from the densely populated downtown area. Despite New York State's abolition of slavery in 1827, discrimination was still prevalent throughout New York City and severely limited the lives of African-Americans. So Seneca Village's remote location likely provided a refuge from this climate. 
It also would have provided an escape from the unhealthy and crowded conditions of the city and access to more space both inside and outside the home. Compared to other African-Americans living in New York, residents of Seneca Village seemed to have been more stable and prosperous. By 1855, approximately half of them owned their own homes. With property ownership came other rights not commonly held by African-Americans in the city, namely the right to vote. See, they knew the importance way back then about voting. In 1821, New York State required African-American men to own at least $250 in property and to hold residency for at least three years to be able to vote. And see, they were doing all they could to suppress that right to vote back then. Mm-hmm. Now, of the 100 Black New Yorkers eligible to vote in 1845, 10 of them lived in Seneca Village. The fact that many residents were property owners contradicts some common misperceptions during the mid-19th century that the people living on the land slated for the park were poor squatters living in shanties. Now, there were some residents that lived in shanties and in crowded condition, but most lived in two-story homes. Census records show that residents were employed with African-Americans typically employed as laborers and in job and in, in service jobs. So that was the main option for them at the time to have those kinds of jobs, right? But records also show that most children who lived in Seneca Village attended school. Now, during the 1850s, the early 1850s, the city began planning for a large municipal park to counter unhealthy or un, yeah, I guess I would say un desirable, if you will, <laughs> urban conditions. And um, they wanted to provide space for recreation. I think I heard it said once that they wanted parks that were similar to those in like France and Paris in particular. So in 1853, the New York State Legislature enacted a law that set aside 775 acres of land in Manhattan from 59th Street to 106th Street between 5th and 8th Avenues to create the country's first major landscape public park. The city acquired the land through eminent domain. And this is the law that allows the government to take private land for public use with compensation paid to the landowner. This was a common practice in the 19th century and had been used to build Manhattan's grid of streets decades earlier. There were roughly 1,600 inhabitants displaced throughout the area. Although land order, the landowners were compensated, many argued that their land was undervalued. Shocker. Now, ultimately, all residents had to leave by the end of 1857. Research is currently underway to determine where Seneca Village residents relocated. Now, it's said that some may have gone to other Afri African-American communities in the region, such as, you know, Sandy Ground, which was in Staten Island, or Skunk Hollow, which was in New Jersey, okay? Now, we only have limited knowledge of what life was like in Seneca Village. Uh, there's been ongoing work to learn more about its residents and their lives. In 2011, archaeologists from Columbia University and the City University of New York 
conducted a dig of the site. They uncovered artifacts such as an iron tea kettle, a roasting pan, a stoneware beer bottle, fragments of, of uh, Chinese export porcelain, and a small shoe with a leather sole. These items have helped us piece together what life was like for the village's residents. And despite its short history of only 32 years, Seneca Village is understood as a tight-knit community that served as a stabilizing and empowering force in uncertain times. So if you want to learn more about the history of Seneca Village, its property owners, and what New York City was like at that time, you can go to centralparknyc.org and check out the articles about the artifacts and the archives of Seneca Village, right? It's like we learn something every day, beautiful people, no matter how big or small. Okay, kings and queens, tomorrow is National Random Acts of Kindness Day. And actually all week it's been, you know, international random, no, national random um, acts of kindness all week long. But tomorrow um, specifically is focused on, you know, doing really kind things because sometimes the smallest act can make the biggest impact, right? Have you ever noticed that? You could be having a bad day and someone in the store, you know, um, that you might see while you're shopping, I flash you a smile and it reminds you that yes, kindness still exists in the world. So Random Acts of Kindness Day encourages you to get out there and be the light that you would like to see in the world. This day was created in Denver, Colorado in 1995 and it spread from there. The idea behind this day is to make the world a better place by spreading a light around spreading a light around everywhere you go, making places better than, you know, uh, when you found them or however you found them, making it better, right? By, by, you know, just being kind in every aspect of your life, if you can. There are small things that you can do. It doesn't have to be this like earth shattering, world changing, you know, thing, so to speak. But you can do something to maybe lift someone up with your words, maybe um, encouraging them when they feel discouraged or complimenting them on their appearance, giving recognition to someone's efforts, right? All those things make a difference. So I invite you, Village, to think about what you can do to put a smile on someone else's face today and no matter what day it is, right? Because we need to always remember to be kind because what you put out into the universe will come right back to you. This song was performed by this English new wave band. It was released as a single in September, 1982 from the group's platinum selling debut album, Kissing to be Clever. It was the band's first UK number one hit. In the US, the single was released in November of 82 and it also became a hit reaching number two for three weeks on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in March and April of 83. However, it was kept out of the number one spot by the massively successful hit. Um, it was by the King of Pop himself. And I think I recall 
it was Billie Jean. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Culture Club, you had no chance. Now, according to the leader of this band, this was their last chance to get an album deal. In a retrospective review, all music journalist Jose F. Promise described this song right here that I'm about to play for y'all as a simple masterpiece resonating, resonating with an ache that harked back to the classic torch songs of yesteryear. Hmm. Well, let's see if y'all agree. Village, here's Culture Club with Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? Do you? Give me time Yeah. 
Now this song helped this group rise to R&B stardom. The leader and focal point of this group wrote this song actually a year earlier in the hopes that then label mate and longtime idol Marvin Gaye would record it. In fact, Marvin Gaye was the inspiration for the song, which is hinted in the group's vocal harmonizing in the final part of the song, <clears throat> excuse me which in fact was similar to Gay's I Want You vocal style. By the following year, Gay had left the label and this group ended up recording it, the song themselves. Producing the song with Barry Gordy's niece, Iris, the single was issued as the third release from All This Love, name of the album. The song was featured in 1983 in an episode of the U.S. daytime soap opera, Days of Our Lives. Well, I mean, that was not one of my soaps, but it definitely is one of my favorite songs by this group. Here's the barge with all this love. And when we come back, I will get into today's topic. some problems and no one could seem to solve them but you found the answer you told me to take this chance and learn the ways of love my baby and all that it has to offer in
village so i'd like to speak to you today about protecting our emotional health and well-being you know village when we think about our overall health it is important to recognize the different aspects of our health and all that we need to do in order to take the best care of ourselves now emotional health is an important part of overall health and people who are emotionally healthy are in control of their thoughts, their feelings, and their behaviors. They're able to cope with life's challenges. They can keep problems in perspective and bounce back from setback. Now, beautiful people, one of the first things that we need to understand is that often mental health and emotional health are used interchangeably, but they are not the same thing at all. As a mental health advocate, my focus and concern will always be on our mental health, but it is also important that we understand we have one body and <laughs> consisted with, you know, what consists within it is our mind, our body and our soul, right? So every aspect of our health is important and I'm interested in making sure that we have a complete understanding of all of them. Now, in this case, I'm talking about our emotional health, which focuses on being in tune with your emotions, vulnerability, and authenticity. And this is according to psychologist, Dr. Julie Fraga. She says, having good emotional health is a fundamental aspect of fostering resilience, self-awareness, and overall contentment. Now, don't get it twisted, people. This in no way means that you're always going to be happy or that you're never going to experience negative thoughts. Mm -mm, that's not it. But it's about learning how to best manage the ups and downs that we encounter in our lives. Does that make sense? Now, let's take a look at some common examples of good emotional health and the impact that it can have. First, we, we should notice when upsetting emotions arise. Okay, it enables you to name them and process them in a healthy way. For example, you might choose to compassionately confront someone who hurt or angered you rather than to lash out at them. Or maybe you opt to set some healthy boundaries at work or with loved ones. So like for instance, if you need to talk to somebody, somebody who you're upset with, somebody that you're not really happy with right now, um, I've been in that position and in fact kind of am in that position right now where I want to talk to this person, but I want it to be a, a constructive conversation, right? One that will result in healing. I don't want it to become this shouting match or, you know, this argument where now we're not talking to each other for like the rest of our lives. So that's kind of what you want to do when you're noticing what it is that's bothering you. Perhaps you need to write things down, sort of like work through them so that you'll be able to express yourself in a way that will allow that person to perhaps see your point of view. But then you need to be willing to do the same for them, right? 
How about catching your own self-judgments, right? We could tear ourselves apart. We are our own worst critics. And according to Dr. Fraga, this means turning that critical inner voice into an opportunity for self-love and compassion. For example, when you find yourself engaging in negative self-talk, you might wanna ask yourself, if my child or my partner or my best friend were talking to me in this way, how would I respond? Now, if your answer is, I wouldn't put up with that from them, then why are you okay with putting up with it from yourself, right? That's what they want you to think about. What makes it challenging for me to treat myself the same way I treat others? We go out of our way to be kind and considerate and caring and loving to everybody else, but find it very difficult to do the same for ourselves. And we need to start doing that. How about curiosity? They say curiosity killed the cat. Yes, what they say. But emotional health flourishes when you're curious about your thoughts. When you're asking yourself, why do I feel this way? Your thoughts, your behaviors, your feelings, why they arise at certain times, okay? Why is it whenever I walk into work, I feel anxious, you know? Or how come every time I see that person, I immediately feel sort of like my stomach burn, you know, like with rage. What, what is it? Ask yourself questions. In this case, curiosity is, is kind of like what we need to do, right? It's important to, to be cognizant of our feelings and our thoughts. So why is working on our emotional health so important? Well, because it's just as important as taking care of your physical health. Notice that, you know, everybody's focus for the most part is on physical health. When you're talking about, oh, I don't know, the kind of diet that you have, uh, you know, the food that you intake, you're, you want to eat healthier, or you're being mindful of the fact you need to drink more water, or exercising, getting out for some fresh air, making sure you get plenty of sleep. All of those things are focused on taking care of your physical health. But there are other aspects of our health that we also need to take care of. Don't forget, there's your mental health and there's also your spiritual health. And right now I'm talking to you about emotional health. So it's just as important because all of them really kind of work together, if you will. And what I mean by that is even though they are separate and focus on different parts of you, if something happens in life, you know, let's say something negative happens in your life, all of those things can be impacted in one way or another. Your physical health, your, your mental health, emotional, and your spiritual health can all be affected because remember, it's one body, one mind, body, soul. You're all con it's all connected, right? So it's important to work on it just like you would with your physical health. And that work pays off with now, you know, giving you an ability to have resilience to stress. Emotional distress makes you more vulnerable to physical illness by impacting your immune system, right? It will help you to have deeper relationships. When you're equipped with the skills to manage your emotions, it's easier for you to connect with others and show more empathy and compassion. And you may be better able to hold your own in an argument and talk through your feelings instead of chatting and yelling at one another, right? It also gives you higher self-esteem. Your thoughts, your feelings, and experiences influence the way that you feel about yourself. Good emotional health helps you to see the best in yourself despite whatever challenges you may be facing. It also gives you more energy. Did you, did you know that? 
I, I think I understand that because when you're in a negative headspace, it can zap you of your energy. When you have a positive outlook, it makes you feel more energized. It helps you feel focused and you can think more clearly. Whereas if you have a poor emotional, um, excuse me, poor emotional health, it's, it depletes you of your mental resources and it leaves you feeling exhausted. A village, what are some ways that we can go about improving our emotional health? First, we need to realize that emotional health is more of a process than a goal, right? It's something that takes time and chances are that you are already probably doing some things to help strengthen your emotional health and you may not have known it until now, right? As you're listening to these tips. Now, Healthline offers some of the following tips, you know, for us to think about. They say that we should practice emotional regulation, but sometimes our emotions can get the best of us right? Don't get it twisted. Um, It can happen. We can still get mad. We can still get upset, but we can also learn how to respond instead of reacting to a situation. And if you're wondering what the difference is, one causes you to maybe take a breath or two, count backwards from 10 to one. Whereas when we react to a situation, we're all in our feelings and the anger or frustration that we may be feeling comes out and all hopes to have a constructive conversation goes right out the window. And that's not what we want, you dig? How about exercise? It can be a great way to relieve stress if you're feeling overwhelmed by it at work or at home. Physical activity can nourish both your emotional and physical health. Look at that, two for one. Mm, I like that. Strengthen your social connections. Staying connected with loved ones can offer a buffer when you're going through challenging times. So be sure to spend time with people who are uplifting and who encourage you in person or over the phone whenever you need a little boost. And be mindful, right? We're starting to see a growing body of research that indicates that mindfulness is linked to less emotional reactivity and greater relationship satisfaction. Mindfulness can be as simple as focusing on one thing at a time. It could be a social media detox, which I take every Sunday for 24 hours, turning household chores into a mental health break, etc. It's just recommended that we set aside some time each and every day in order to practice mindfulness. And if you are forgetting the idea of mindfulness, it is, um, how can I explain? that you're not like making yourself depressed by looking back into the past uh, mistakes that you may have made things that you feel like you've done wrong we're constantly beating ourselves up about it well that can cause us to become depressed which is not good right because we stay stuck in the past or on the other side of things we might be looking toward the future the future is unknown and as a result of that unknown future it can cause great anxiety because you're wondering how things are going to turn out with any number of situations in your life and all you're doing is causing yourself anxiety unnecessarily which is harmful to you but mindfulness what it does is it asks you basically to remain in the present and it helps you to focus on what's going on in the here and now so that you're not you know overwhelming yourself with and anxious thoughts but what's happening right now so that you're able to deal with the here and now and move forward from there okay so that's pretty much what mindfulness is getting quality sleep is always in every conversation I noticed that when we're talking about any aspect of our health sleep is always in the building right there's no exception 
Now, one 2018 study found that being sleep deprived leads to more repetitive negative thoughts. Being overly tired can make you more emotionally reactive and that emotional reactivity can negatively affect your outlook, performance, and your relationships. There are a lot of people walking around here who think, oh, I only get, you know, two, three hours of sleep a night. And so because you haven't collapsed somewhere on, on the floor or worse, you think you're doing yourself a favor. You're not. You think because you're operating that way that, you know, you're doing good. You're not. You're causing yourself harm and you really need to do better. I'm hoping you'll do better. So what I would love for all of you and me to take away from this is that emotional health is crucial to our overall well-being. We need to be sure to take care of ourselves, our core needs like sleep and connection with others. And if you notice that you still may be in need of further assistance, how about, you know, thinking about working with a mental health professional or a therapist, someone that can help you to identify the things that you may need to work on to improve your emotional health. Here's to brighter days. and all your edges 
That was American singer and one of the judges on the musical competition, The Voice, John Legend himself with All of Me. Now, this song was from his fourth studio album, Love in the Future, which was released in 2013, and it was dedicated to his wife, Chrissy Teigen. It peaked at number one on the Billboard Hot 100, becoming his first number one single in the U.S. It knocked off Happy by Pharrell Williams. Remember? Cause I'm happy. Remember that song? Now that song spent 10 weeks at number one. So that was a big feat. Now the song peaked at number two in the UK, South Africa, and New Zealand. And it topped the charts in Australia, Canada, Ireland, Portugal, Sweden, Switzerland, and the Netherlands, honey. It became the second best-selling song of 2014 in the United States with over 4 million copies sold for the year as well as the third best selling song in the UK. Now, that is definitely my favorite song by him. And I was so excited when I had the chance to see him perform it live. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for this week's inspirational story and it's called The Three Strands of Hair. All right, here's the story. Once a woman woke up in the morning 
only to realize that she had only three strands of hair left on her head. Well, she said, I think I'll braid my hair today. She braided her hair and she had a wonderful day. When she got up the next day and looked in the mirror, she noticed that she had just two strands of hair on her head. She said, I think I'll part my hair down the middle today. Parted her hair in the middle and she had a great day. The next day she woke up, looked in the mirror and noticed that she had only one hair on her head. Well, she said, today I'm gonna wear my hair in a ponytail. So she did and she had a fun day. The next day she woke up and noticed that there wasn't a single hair on her head. She said, yippee. Woo. She said, I don't have to fix my hair today. <laughs> I tell you, attitude is everything. Be kind because everyone you meet is fighting some kind of battle. Live simply, love generously, care deeply, and speak kindly. The moral of this story, attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. This song was written by this American rock band's guitarist, vocalist, David Pack, and it was released in the summer of 1978 as the lead single from their third album, Life Beyond LA, peaking at number three on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and number two for three weeks on the Cash Box Top 100. Here's the group Ambrosia with How Much I Feel. Started of you thinking that I had been untrue, but if you think that we'd be better parted, it's gonna hurt me, but I break away from you.
Sunshine when she's gone. It's not warm when she's away. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone, and she's always gone too long. Anytime she goes away, wonder this time where she's gone. Wonder if she's gone to stay Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And this house just ain't no home Anytime she goes away And I know, 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 I know Sunshine when she's gone Only darkness every day Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And this house just ain't no home Anytime she goes away That was the late Bill Withers with Ain't No Sunshine from his 1971 album, Just As I Am, produced by Booker T. Jones. Now, the record featured musicians Donald Duck Dunn on bass guitar, Al Jackson Jr. on drums, and Stephen Stills on guitar. String arrangements were done by Booker T. Jones. The song was recorded in Memphis by engineer Terry Manning, and it became the breakthrough hit for Withers, reaching number six on the U.S. R&B chart and number three on the Billboard Hot 100. Billboard ranked it as the number 23 song for 1971. Definitely a classic. Wouldn't you agree? Thank you. 
Well, kings and queens, it looks like we've come to the end of another show. I do hope that the information provided will be of help to you. Remember, it is always a good idea to do your own research, no matter what the topic is, especially if your life is involved. Thank you so much for tuning in this week, and I look forward to being with you all again next Wednesday for the season finale, all right, here at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And please be sure to follow Village Mentality on Instagram at villagementality.ckm, as in Mary, and on Facebook at Village Mentality, the podcast. You can also catch all episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Radio Public, and Breaker. And there is a link available to each episode on Instagram, again, at villagementality.ckm, as in Mary, and on Facebook at Village Mentality, the podcast. As well, you can catch it at theawakenlounge.com backslash village hyphen mentality. Now just remember, God has got me and he's got you too. Be blessed, beautiful people. And here's Brighter Days. So stalling, yeah. Everybody's running scared. We used to be so carefree, we used to be so happy, we used to have everything we need. Yeah.